0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchasi. My guest today is John Monroe, the author of The Anti-Colonial Front, The African-American Freedom Struggle and Global Decolonization, 1945 to 1960. And the book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Hi there, John. Hello,
1: Roxanne. How are you?
0: I'm fine, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: I really appreciate the invitation. Thanks for having me.
0: Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself?
1: Uh, sure, yeah. I'm originally from Vancouver, but now uh, I teach in the history department at St. Mary's University uh, in Halifax, which is a small city in Canada's East Coast. For that, I was a graduate student at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I worked there with Nelson Lichtenstein, was my advisor, and uh, was really blessed with a great committee there. I worked there with George Lipsitz, Alice O'Connor, Howard Winant, and uh, the late Cedric Robinson. And they were um, very influential on the the ideas I try to uh, explore in this book.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about how you got interested in the questions and issues that you deal with in the anti-colonial front?
1: Sure. Um, To answer that question, uh, I have to go back a bit farther. I was an undergraduate student and wasn't sure of my path, kind of drifted out of uh, studies was working full-time in the in the workforce and came back to um to, to finish my uh, bachelor's degree at the was almost 30 or so at the time and i i came back i uh at simon fraser university and started working there with karen ferguson and i took a class of hers on african-american history and i was just so fascinated by the by the subject matter and one of the things that that I studied with her, one of the most important, probably the most important book I read, if I had to name one of many, would be Penny Bounashian's Race Against Empire. Mm. And as I explained in the in the introduction to my book, I, I read that with Karen Ferguson, and at the same time met Jack Odell in the very meeting of where we were where we met to discuss um, Bounashian's Race Against Empire. And Jack Odell um, is someone who this is about fifteen years ago, but. Has now become a little bit more well known, partly because of the work of Michael Singh and, and others. Uh, Ian Roxborough Smith, uh, for example, have have done more work to to explain uh, his his great significance uh, as an activist in the Black Freedom struggle in the United States. And as we read Bounesian's book together, an incredible book that shows the interconnections between the global scene and uh, African American politics within the U.S. in the in 20th century, mm-hmm. he really emphasizes in that book that the, the power of anti-communism to kind of shut down a certain transnational liberatory anti-capitalist politics. And that's a compelling thesis, but it also jarred a little bit with what I learned directly from uh, Jack O'Dell about his own activism in which he maintained those very politics through the period of McCarthyism and, and well, well beyond that to this day uh, as a matter mm-hmm. So this is really how I, how I came to this topic, and I wanted to learn more. And as I learned more, I came to see the, the greater and greater significance of, of Jack O'Dell's story and the way that it connected to this much larger story that involved the much better known uh, individuals, W.E.B. Du Bois and others who are very well known. I tell this story in the introduction to the book rather than the acknowledgements because I just wanted to so foreground mm-hmm. um, how skint it was in terms of how it came to the, to the project. You know, in the in the final rounds uh of, of revisions, I was going back and forth with friends who I'd shared this with and, and arguing with some of them. You know, <laughs> this is this is acknowledgments, not introduction. Put it in the proper thought. And another friend of mine, uh, Fennel Antwi said, putting this in the introduction shows how knowledge is produced through relationships. And that just seemed like such a compelling way to think about it.
0: Yeah, I was really struck by it reading it. It's not the usual place, right? But that was—that's kind of what I liked about it. So um, I'm on the side of those people who told you the, to to leave it in the introduction. Um, so I I just want to ask you a few questions, John, about the setup of the book and the periodization. And let's let's maybe start with that. That the book runs from 1945 to 1960, at least in the title dates. I mean, you reach back uh, to the 30s, but those two dates, those bookends in in the title. I mean, they might seem like really obvious dates, but can you tell us? A little bit about the framing of the book chronologically and and how uh, how that came together
1: sure um there's a there's a number of ways to explain this i mean from 1945 to 1960 is another way of saying from the victory uh, over fascism to the beginning of the radical uh 1960s or the post-colonial era it's also a way of charting before McCarthyism, through McCarthyism, until McCarthyism had largely subsided, even though of course it can to have a major uh, impacting different iterations. And I feel like in terms of the historiography, there's a way that the 1960s are well known as the quote unquote capital S 60s, the radical era. And then there's something about the 50s that always seemed conservative in comparison to that. And I wanted to to tell this story that, that explains how the 60s come from somewhere. You know, they come from, of course, uh, a set of political events and possibilities that that preceded it.
0: And in terms of the African-American freedom struggle, uh, I'm just wondering about its relationship to, you know, how you're thinking about the civil rights movement and the history of the civil rights movement and the book as a contribution uh, or you know, mm-hmm. some, in some kind of dialogue with scholarship on what you referred to in the introduction um, as this scholarship of, on the long civil rights movement. Could you say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So this book is very much in dialogue uh, with, with that, uh, so much so that maybe I take it for granted. You know, I maybe should explain why I don't begin with uh, the Brown versus Ford decision in 1954, but rather in 1945. Mm. You know, it's a major uh, historiographical intervention that, that really started in the late 1980s. The term came to be coined in the early uh, 2000s, I guess. Particularly, uh, Jacqueline Dow Hall and Mikhail Pausing are two of the most important people pointing this term, and thereby bringing together a lot of insights that other historians and other scholars were were thinking about before this. And the idea is, of course, to think about the Black Freedom Struggle as something something broader, something with a wider. Uh, set of politics than the civil rights, the quote-unquote civil rights movement as as classically defined with the periodization that hinged around passing of legislation or Supreme Court decisions uh, and so on. There's there's a, there's other ways to think about it that are wider that have more uh, organic social movement kinds of politics uh, as part of them as well. Another part of the the long civil rights movement idea is not not just temporal but spatial and that's and that's maybe my contribution isn't to help establish the long civil rights movement idea that's already there but maybe to to further expand on the the global spatial dimensions of what the long civil rights movement idea uh might mean
0: so john the Sort of other part of the title is this idea of global decolonization. And I just want to ask you a little bit about that, you know, what you think of as this book's intervention, your intervention within the broader kind of field of histories of decolonization, and then also the relationship in your own mind and in this work between what is a U.S. history, but what is also a transnational and a global history, those ambitions for this book.
1: Yeah. Well, if the first argument is about the persistence and continuities of of a kind of transnationally minded black radicalism through the McCarthy period, then the second argument speaks exactly to this point about the way that colonialism and decolonization fits into this international picture. Mm. And so on this project and started thinking more about the, the transnational dimensions at first i really thought of it in terms of cold war studies and cold war historiography the what was the international answer the cold war mm-hmm. um and then as i read other work outside of cold war studies and and also definitely the huge transformations that have happened within cold war studies in terms of thinking about decolonization and the cold war i came more and more to see that my my primary frame of the Cold War wasn't quite the right one, but actually the more fundamental frame, and therefore, I came to argue, the more fundamental historical structure of the 20th century uh, is colonialism, mm. which is maybe a bit of a strange argument because you can't really, there's no empirical basis for that exactly. Um, it's more of a sensibility than than really um, a provable argument, which mm. I'm comfortable with because I'm not an empiricist anyways. But <laughs> this came to make more sense, and I wanted to actually try putting this forward as as kind of a thesis for the book. So so really, I, I I do argue directly that colonialism was more historically fundamental than the Cold War. And so therefore, thinking about the black freedom struggle uh, in the U.S. in an international context means the international context is primarily one about colonialism and decolonization, that contest, uh, rather than the fundamental contest being the Washington versus Moscow uh, superpowers one.
0: hmm And so the anti-colonial front as a choice of kind of the lead title to the book, you know, to break it apart a little bit and tell us a little bit about what it means. Can you say a few words about that?
1: Sure. I mean, the title in some ways is an echo of uh, the American Studies scholar, Michael Denning's um, The Cultural Front, mm-hmm. which is this absolute landmark, right? Um, work in, in American Studies, left's culture and politics. Um, it's kind of an encyclopedia and a great read all at the same time in the 1930s and, and 40s primarily. And, and I just was so taken. I read that book in graduate school and I was just so taken by its approach and, and, and what it was able to do. And there was, I couldn't produce an encyclopedia like that one, but I wanted to echo its, its approach, even if the echo is, is more faint than, than the original, uh, in terms of trying to bring together a variety of, of political positions in a front. It's, it's, it's a good word for it. It's a, it's, it's a loose affiliation, but it nonetheless is an affiliation, and I wanted to capture that, and so this is how I came to the point.
0: Just going back for a second, John, to this question of the relationship of the book to, to the idea of the Cold War, one of the things that you say uh, in the introduction to the book is that you wanted to not, not just reframe the Cold War as, as a chapter in colonial history, but also think about it very clearly in relationship to this notion of racial capitalism. And you also use the phrase gendered racial capitalism. Can you just give us a little bit of a sense of how you're using that terminology?
1: Sure. Um, Well, racial capitalism, uh, I borrow from from Cedric Robinson, who didn't coin the term. He kind of came up with it uh, in dialogue with some South African historiography, as the historian uh, Peter Hudson has shown. But I also uh, wanted to think about the ways that, and other scholars have, have argued this about Cedric Robinson's work, particularly his book Marxism that his term racial capitalism is, is not a foreclosure. It's not a term that says there are two categories that can be fought with, uh, and and that's, the, and that's the totality of, of a given uh, structure. But rather, if we can think about race and capitalism together as intertwined structures, white supremacy and capitalism, I should say more, more correctly, then uh, that's an opening to how we might think about patriarchy uh, as well within that. And so, so this is the sense in which, in which I mean term. But I also mean it's not, it's not only a kind of retroactive um, application of a term onto an earlier period, but I also learned from the people I'm writing about some of the, the feminist actors that I, that I talk about in the book, from uh, Amy Ashwood Garvey at the Pan-African Congress in mm-hmm. Manchester uh, in 1845, to people like Hester Cooper Jackson, and, and at the most kind of fully theorized level, uh, Claudia Jones writing in the, in the Journal of Political Affairs, there's a way in which this category is really uh the, the, this framing is already really in operation. And not everybody is is sharing this or exploring the, the gender dimensions of racial capitalism, but, but it's there. And mm-hmm. so so I'm learning from that, and then also thinking about contemporary debates and discussions about Cedric Robinson's work as I frame this term, which which really I think is is capacious and, and does the kind of work that, that I think gets us to a place of understanding this era politics in its, its many dimensions.
0: So I guess I want to ask you about, you know, what you refer to in the introduction, I think, as the archive of the anti-colonial front and the range of sources that you're using to get at Both the kind of bigger picture of imperial, colonial, anti-colonial dynamics and Cold War dynamics and some of these other things, but also the words and experiences and activisms of these individuals. And you look at so many of them over the course of the book. So could you talk a little bit about your sources and the range of things that you're drawing on for this work?
1: Certainly. And this was a challenge um, in that one of the ways to approach this topic is to look at some of the organizations these individuals were were involved in. And again, there's a way that the archive preordains the argument in this sense, in that if you look at an organization, at a black radical organization in the United States, and I look at several of them, of course, in this book, Many of them were. Many of the organizations were unable to survive the, the McCarthyist uh, repression, mm. and so there's a way that that archival uh, source will then sort of tell that very story that McCarthyism brought to an end this form of politics. And this is again why, for me, Jack Odell is so, is so important to this story because organizations that he that he was a part of folded. But that didn't mean that he stopped thinking the way that he did or, or stopped carrying on exactly the kinds of uh, politics and activities that he, that he was doing. Right. So here was the challenge then, if not an organizational set of records, then, then how to do it. And the, the W.E.B. Du Bois papers were, were the center, the archival core of the book because they're so thorough uh, and they're so voluminous. And uh, the historian and Du Bois' assistant, Herbert Aptiker, did, did such a good job in collecting everything that using that as the core, then I could see who Du Bois was in with and then just follow who they were in conversation with and just really try to follow the correspondence. That was the way to do it for me in this book, a way of trying to track the conversation beyond what happened to various organizations, and then that in dialogue with, with publications uh, of the period, of course, as well. Some novels, some literature, uh, but primarily uh, journalistic and monthly theoretical journals like Political Affairs uh, and and many others. So it ended up being a kind of yeah a diverse archive uh, mm-hmm. in that sense. And, and I really learned to. I talked a little bit about this in the introduction, but I really um, uh, Minka Makalani's work really influenced me here uh, as well. He, he has this kind of phrase about repositioning the evidence, which I just thought that was exactly, exactly what I wanted to do. That, that phrase just captured it for me because some of the sources I've looked at, in fact, many of the sources I've looked at, other people have looked at them before. This isn't an empiricist exercise, again, of I found the proof in the, in the archives, right. but rather... Reading them this way is the way that makes sense to me and, and therefore the way that I think makes this argument uh, most most compelling. So the variety of, of archival sources was absolutely essential to the kind of arguments and arguments that I'm trying to make in the book.
0: It's also a book, John, that complicates our understandings of some political terms that we use regularly and sometimes you know need to think more critically about or take apart more This is kind of an impossible question, but I at least want, you know, before we get into the details of the chapters to ask you to say a little bit about how you are looking at uh, and how you're using some of these terms left liberal, at least for the purposes of this book, because the book is about complicating how we understand liberalism's relationship to um, imperialism. But also you're looking at left, but left doesn't here mean just party politics or communist party politics. Mm-hmm. So, could you just say a little mm-hmm. bit about the the messiness, I guess, of some of the political terminology in the period that you're that you're looking at?
1: Sure. And here I enter directly into a debate about the relationship between liberalism, uh, U.S. Cold War liberalism, and the Black Freedom struggle. This debate, there are there are several historians taking part in it, but if I was to to say that the the two most important would be Gerald Horne and, and Carol Anderson. And to, to oversimplify, just to be brief, both of them make quite complex arguments. But for Gerald Horne, anti-communism during the Cold War really scared liberals away from the, the wider uh, transnational political economy oriented type of politics that were more in evidence in the 1930s. And, and so for, for, for Gerald Horn, for example, this means that the organizations like the NAACP really backed away from an anti-colonial position because of the, the politics of the Cold War. Uh, and the ways in which that limited those those types of, of politics, whereas Carol Anderson looks at the NAACP as well and says, no, we can see that the NAACP made many courageous stands against colonialism uh, during the very era of uh, Joseph McCarthy and and beyond. So I enter into this into this debate and and. and even though they they can they seem quite polarized in some ways these two arguments they, they both have have aspects of them uh, that are that are correct definitely there's ways that the that the NAACP and other liberals african american and and white supporters of the civil rights movement from uh, a liberal perspective really did tone down the ways in which that uh, something like capitalism could be could be talked about mm-hmm. and certainly the ways in which the United States might be an imperial power. Right. In this sense, liberals really did fall within a, within a Cold War paradigm, thinking about sort of U.S. freedom, even though freedom that, that might need some work, versus Soviet totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Whereas other actors further to the left in the Communist Party, but certainly not, not only there, uh, saw the U.S. as an imperial power, and so in some ways we can certainly criticize Stalinism, and that's that's an issue that I that I bring up as well. Mm-hmm. But communists and others further to the left were more interested in holding on to capitalism as something that was necessary to think with in terms of of dealing with this larger structure that I'm calling gendered racial capitalism. Mm-hmm. Both sides of this of this debate had things that that I could see the the, the truth of. And, and try to balance uh, between them while acknowledging uh, each side.
0: Right. The book is framed, John, by these dates, 1945 to 1960. But you begin the book earlier than that period. You begin the book in this year, 1935. So can you tell us about the significance of 1935 as a starting point and how that first chapter or so of the book, you're kind of setting up the period that is the core uh, of, of what you're doing here?
1: Yeah, sure. Because I needed to talk about the popular front uh, in the United States. That was that was essential. And because it's, you know, it's a left liberal coalition of a sort, and it is the, uh, you know, progressive politics of the whole era that proceeds and, and definitely continues into uh, the era that I'm looking at. So this was the essential backdrop they had to, they had to be dealt with. But beyond that, I wanted to talk about the differences between anti fascism and anti colonialism. Uh, they sometimes overlap, but they're certainly not necessarily the, mm-hmm. the same thing. And so, with the Soviet um, announcement of a popular front line uh, in 1935, uh, and of course, from the position of Moscow, they're thinking mostly about what's just happened uh, two years earlier in Germany. Thinking about the threat of fascism from the point of view of Moscow meant downgrading colonialism um you know the british empire would not be as subject to scrutiny under the terms of anti-fascism uh, as, as it might have been before mm-hmm. and so for the actors i'm i'm looking at they retained their anti-colonialism through this period w.e.b du bois being a great example and he's someone who i talk about in the context of 1935 the year that his blockbuster book black reconstruction uh called. So there's a way in which the actors I'm looking at were kind of, of course, anti-fascist, but they were also anti-colonial, and that wasn't necessarily the same thing. So there's a way that the Popular Front is is necessary for me to talk about as both backdrop and to kind of tease out the the politics of anti-fascism and anti-colonialism, their overlaps, but also their uh, differences.
0: The subsequent two chapters, two or three chapters, John, look at these key moments, Manchester, 1945, South Carolina, 1946. And then you move on uh, later in the book, you'll talk about Bandung and Paris. And, you know, we don't have time to talk in detail about all of these moments and places that you go to. But I did want to ask you about even just in terms of research and writing the book and organizing the book, you know, you follow things chronologically, but that movement back and forth between the national U.S. context and this international context.
1: Mm-hmm. It connects directly to um, what I was saying earlier about the the archive of the book. Um, I traced the conversations and people who were in dialogue often found themselves, uh, not surprisingly, face to face at these at these very meetings. So W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, is at both uh, Manchester uh, in 1945 and then Columbia, South Carolina, 1946. Mm-hmm. So following. His physical person and what he's doing uh, is a way of, of seeing that these connections between what's happening in the U.S. and beyond the U.S. are not just theoretical. Um, du Bois himself uh, embodies them. So, so that's, that's earlier in the book, 45, 46. And then I wanted to focus a bit more on some domestic issues, publications, and, and, and I spent a chapter looking directly at the force of, of McCarthyism, but then I wanted to return to the international uh, arena. With uh, well, of course, Bandung is so so well known, and to think about okay, what looks different at this time, and what are the ways in which the politics of these two earlier conferences are continuing, and, and that and that again happens uh, in in Paris at the uh, Congress of Black Writers and, and Artists there in 1956, and then Ghana's independence in 1957 was kind of a natural. And to include because, in many ways, uh, well, first of all, because Kwame Nkrumah is at Manchester in 1945, so following him physically, uh, it's very obvious the, the connection. But even more so, in many ways, uh, Ghanaian independence is the culmination of the agenda put in, in Manchester in, in 1945. So, in their different ways, there's there's one way that we could, could think of them sort of at first glance so and think a bit of a random section of events. But I think as you read through the book and see the connections between the individuals and the ideas, they they kind of follow in terms of of why they're there, who's there, and what's happening at these different uh, at these different
0: moments in I guess I want to ask you, John. Not being hugely familiar with the scholarship on Du Bois, I just wonder: Do you see yourself as someone who's in any kind of debate or conversation or making a, a particular intervention in what we know about Du Bois and 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 his thinking? Uh, or is he sort of a way into these other questions?
1: Yeah, he is a way into these other questions. I mean, there's just so much, you know, tremendous and terrific uh, work on Du Bois. I'm I'm making, I would say, a, a very small contribution here. But but if there is a contribution on Du Bois specifically, it's to really bolster the the idea that Du Bois's further turn to the left after World War II. Was was a very self conscious one on his part, and it was not a sign of his sort of marginality, as 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 some have have argued, or a sense of him sort of waning in judgment, or or uh, unable to see the the predicaments um, of of Stalinism and the and the compromises that uh, engaging with the Soviet Union and other Stalinist powers would would involve, but rather to see that at every moment Du Bois is as sharply self-possessed as ever. And so his, his turn to the left uh, or his further turns the left, I guess would be a better way of putting it in this period is one that it's, it's a development in his thought really. Um, and, and this is what he, what he thought that anti-capitalist powers were the ones that African Americans ought to be in alliance with in order to take on racial capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um but there's sometimes a way, implicit if not explicit, that doesn't quite write off Du Bois post World War II, but but doesn't doesn't treat his 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 work in that period or his thinking in that period with quite the same boldness and seriousness as the as the, the decades previous. So my contribution here would be to, to call attention to the importance of what of what Du Bois uh, was doing here and the role he played in what, to my mind, is the most important thing that happened in the 20th century, decolonization, the end of empires, um, this worldwide attack against white supremacy.
0: You know, I hadn't really thought about these two questions as being as connected as they are now that I've just listened to you, but two questions, I guess. One is the kind of watershed that 1945 is and isn't, but then also the question you know, that I think about in the second and third chapters about Manchester in 1945, but then, you know, the third chapter, which is, you know, titled The Youth and the Union. Mm-hmm. Thinking about generation within this story, there's this trope of the 60s as the decade of youth. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wonder how the, some of the uh, history that you're exploring here, maybe reframes our thinking about generational conflict within some of these political movements, if you have any thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, great. So. I think what we can see here is that this is very much an intergenerational phenomenon. Mm. Um, and if we think about the 60s as the decade of youth, the, the conference that I mentioned in Columbia, South Carolina, the organization that, that brings that together is called the Southern Negro Youth Congress, it has a word youth right in its, uh, in its title, that, that some have already uh, argued is, is really an important precursor to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, in the 1960s. But if we think about that conference in 1946, Jack O'Dell in his early 20s and W.E.B. Du Bois, a senior citizen, are both there in the same hall. Uh, Du Bois on the stage, uh, Mr. O'Dell in the audience. And so we can think about generation. I think it's it's a good category to think with, but it's not the most salient one. It's not the one around which the most important divisions are are happening. The the, the divisions are the the more important divisions are on the questions of what is the relationship of capitalism to colonialism and what should one's position be towards the U S foreign policy, uh, in, in the cold war context, is that just more imperialism or is the cold war, uh, something new. And again, to the, to the question you already asked about gender, what are the gender politics of, of this political formation? But so think about those kind of more classically, I guess, intersectional sorts of um, uh, vectors of power as the as the most significant ones. Generation is of course there, but it's, it's it doesn't it's not in the foreground in the way that these other uh, dimensions are.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you want to say something, John, about nineteen forty five and how you think about it as a or how you're working with it as a break, but then not also.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny, I, I begin, you know, of course, it's, it's on the cover of the book. Um, and so therefore announces it in some ways as the beginning of something. But what I really want to do, and, and I hope was able to get across in the book is that 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 exactly, as you said, it, the ways that it's not a watershed, the ways that under the terms of what's called the Cold War, imperialism continues. Mm-hmm. Um and so, if we think about it in those terms, 1945 is not the beginning of an entirely new chapter, but much more the continuation of already existing colonial types of, of uh, transnational structures.
0: So, in addition to exploring these different moments and sites and the movement of these political actors and activists and their ideas across these spaces, you have this chapter, John, in which you explore three Cold War texts and, you know, you refer to it as the anti-colonial front in print. So you focus on three journals. If you could just give us a sense of you know, what three journals do you, do you talk about in this chapter? Why did you choose them and what's the significance of, of, of these three publications?
1: Yeah, I chose them for, for a few different reasons. Um, one was to simply track the, the continuity of, uh, again, a black radical transnational uh, sensibility uh, at this time in the United States. And so these these journals are good examples of, of this continuity that I'm, that I'm talking about. So as a whole, they do some of that work. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to talk about these journals together because I wanted to, to speak to, to the simultaneity of reading, uh, in a sense, the ways that someone might be reading uh, a journal as left as the Communist Party's journal but particularly in the African-American community, one individual who's reading that journal may well also be reading the NAACP's uh, journal, the, the Crisis, even though its political position is, is somewhat different. Right. But I wanted to think about readers reading these together, as was probably often the case. That so was, that was one um, way of thinking about it. So I've got the Political Affairs, the, the monthly theoretical journal uh, of the Congress of the United States. Freedom, which was the journal that uh, Paul Robeson uh, headed and ran, its its timeline is a bit shorter, nineteen fifty to, to fifty five, mm-hmm. um, and so I wanted to also track what the politics of what sort of once was the Popular Front looked like from both liberal and left perspectives in the post Popular Front nineteen fifties.
0: Yeah, I think bringing together the discussion of these three journals, and I'm sure there are other. Well, you do talk about a number of other types of publications throughout the book it really gives the re- the reader I mean me in this case, a sense of this proliferation of voices in a period that people tend to maybe assume, you know, especially people who don't know as much about this history was a period of relative silence or the okay. expression of 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 discourse and dissent on, uh, on this and on these and other issues. And it kind of exactly yeah, and it kind of leads into this. I guess in a way it's kind of another part of the argument that you're making about how the anti-communist orthodoxy of this period or this era didn't crush anti-colonialism, which is this chapter in which you talk about the uneven impact of anti-communism. And I was really, um, really struck in this chapter, which is I guess chapter five of the book where you are kind of turning things around a little bit saying what, you know, what happens if we think about McCarthyism um, as an imperial form. So could you, you say a little bit about mm-hmm. how that's working and, and the effect that it has in terms of your arguments in the book?
1: Sure. And this this is another example of the kind of shift in my thinking from thinking about the international as Cold War to thinking about the international as, as imperial. And I learn here from, um, I guess, mostly in my case, from the work uh, on British imperialism and the ways in which For scholars of British imperialism, and this has been the case for some time, of course, in that field now, to think about the metropole and the, I guess, external empire as as one field is exactly the way to do it and to think about metropolitan culture as imperial culture. But that insight doesn't get applied as often to to thinking about the history of the United States. And that was a compelling way for me to think about, okay, what McCarthyism is in many ways is empire at home, right? And its Mm. culture In the chapter where I look specifically at McCarthyism, which of course I needed to do, I can't make an argument that says McCarthyism did not have a a, a total impact without without looking at it, you know, directly and closely. And that's what I try to do there.
0: In the sixth chapter, John, this is the chapter in which you talk about Bandung and Paris. So you talk about the African-Asian conference in 1955. And in 1956, You're looking at the first International Congress of Black Writers and Artists. And one of the things that came up for me as I was reading this part of the book was the question of how culture plays a role in all of this, whether it's American culture, African-American culture, European culture. You know, what role is literature playing in this set of exchanges and this movement of ideas and politics or music or This this feels like a chapter in which you're looking more at culture than other other places in the book. But yeah, I'm just wondering about the relationship between culture and politics in this history that you're that you're looking at.
1: Yeah. Um they're always there, they're always related. And the people who I'm writing about in this book very much saw that. I learned that from it. I don't impose that on them, I learned that Mm. from them. And so in this chapter, uh, Richard Wright is probably the best example of, of, of what you're talking about. A novelist, obviously also much more than a novelist, an intellectual and political thinker and activist in, in so many ways. And and he's at both of these places. He's at Bandung in 1955, and he's at the uh, Black Writers and Artists uh Conference in Paris in, in 1956, and and he's writing essays. Uh, his his book The Outsider comes out in the in the 1950s. He's kind of shifting through different genres. Um, he, he writes a book about Beidoung, uh, a nonfiction book, and so he's working with these different cultural and and other forms uh, as ways of of thinking about and exploring these these very questions and, and the themes of the book.
0: So maybe the most, well, for me as a reader, the most heartbreaking chapter title is Independence, the first stage of Um, neocolonialism. This chapter on Ghana in 1957. And how, I guess the question I have for you is, you know, how do you use the case of Ghana here to illuminate the relationship between colonialism and the Cold War? But also, you know, how does Ghana work to be a place of ferment, but also of disillusionment uh, in this period after independence?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I'm and I'm borrowing there from from Kwame Nkrumah himself uh, with that with that title. And yeah. what I particularly want to do here, what I wanted to do with this chapter was there's, there's a way in which this is a familiar story, right? That the the hopes of what decolonization might have been were hopes that were not realized, uh, particularly looking at it, you know, the, from this many uh, decades later. But I wanted to to make clear that the actors of this moment were very much aware of that, um, of that possibility. Um, and yet, in the face of that, that was influenced kind of one of the, the people who I was reading quite a bit of as I got sort of towards the end, I was working on the revisions, was the anthropologist David Scott and, and the way that he that he writes about tragedy as, as a useful way of thinking about freedom struggles. And, what I wanted to do was to, to really foreground and emphasize the fact that people like Kwame Nkrumah, uh, certainly Claudia Jones, certainly W.E.B. Du Bois, certainly Jack O'Dell, mm. already had a sense that this is exactly what might happen, and, and particularly for someone like Nkrumah, who himself, of course, was the head of government, that w- was was such a site of hope and inspiration uh, for so many people, uh, and also a place of, of disillusionment for others or over time, sometimes for those for those very same uh, individuals. C. L. R. James here would be uh, an example. Mm-hmm. So, so this is what I'm trying to do here. The story of, of decolonization to neocolonialism and ultimately neoliberalism I think is a story that most of us know or have a sense of um but what sometimes gets dropped out of that is that is the sense of this isn't just us knowing that looking back at the past but rather mm. um if there's anybody to learn from on this question it's perhaps those who who lived through and contested these these situations as they as they took place and in fact in many cases anticipated them and realized that of course the forces of imperialism were not going to just take the flag down go home and call it a day right of course right. it was always going to be an ongoing uh, contestation. And so hopefully my discussion of, of you neocolonialism know, does does some justice to that that very fact that it's these actors who were often the most insightful uh, in terms of thinking about this very, uh, and in some ways, familiar question.
0: We've already talked, John, about how in some ways one of the projects here is to breathe a certain type of political life into a period that people maybe tend to think of as one in which certain types of politics were squashed. You know, to what extent are you, do you see this book as a challenge to the idea of the 60s um, mm-hmm. and all that it is represented? How are you in conversation here with, you know, some of the newer work on, on thinking about the decade? Do you still believe in the 60s and is this the prehistory of the 60s? Mm-hmm. Um, you end the book in 1960. So, yeah, I guess I'm wondering about your relationship to, to what comes after the period that you're focused on in this book.
1: Mm -hmm. i mean i think that of course i don't know the historiography and the literature on the 60s as well as the 50s but and of course this year you know we we have uh so much thinking and remembering to do about 1968 Mm -hmm. um and and that stands i mean i don't feel like what i'm trying to do with this book is to is to say the 60s didn't really exist as a radical decade or that decades are meaningless or or what have you Mm -hmm. I, i think those kind of sort of common sense ways of thinking about the sixties at this point can stand next to a book that says, and here's where some of that came from. Right. Um, And that's really what I'm, what I'm trying to do here. I think again, maybe the point about generation that I try to make, if not, not so explicitly, but that this, That the black freedom struggle uh in the era i'm looking at was very much an intergenerational one and i'm certainly not this isn't a new argument uh coming from me here but that in the 1960s also continued to be the case so i think maybe if anything if there's anything i'm doing to to revise the 60s as a kind of quote unquote decade um and as an idea is to maybe Diminish somewhat the importance of of generation, uh, and to think about these other kinds of categories that other people already have thought about, but to to sort of help to put those in the foreground by showing where 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 a lot of the um, the, the radical politics of the of the nineteen sixties and the transnational uh, politics of the nineteen sixties came from.
0: In the epilogue to the book, John, you're considering neo and neoliberalism. So, how are you defining and thinking about? neoliberalism here and what does it mean to reflect as you're interested in doing on neoliberalism as tragedy
1: yeah i'm i think again with my emphasis on the continuities of colonial forms of structure throughout uh, before throughout and beyond the 20th century in this book i'm thinking about neoliberalism not so much as a radical departure from welfare state or whatever we might want to think about came before, but more as, as a new chapter in imperial global relations. If we think about neocolonialism as the, uh, sorry if we think about neoliberalism as the form that, uh, that colonialism is currently in, then that to me is, is a useful way to think about um, and of course, one that emphasizes uh, capital accumulation uh, above all um and and that doesn't diminish the state of course but that reorients the state towards the security apparatus that will protect capital accumulation uh here i learned very much from the arguments of uh, of Jordan Kemp and others on on what what neoliberalism is mm-hmm. um the, the, for me, this is this is the way to see this: that the, the dashed hopes of of decolonization uh, are, are best understood as 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 the triumph of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, very much that contestation uh, continues, and in the same way that 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 the actors that I'm writing about in the 1950s say uh, were very aware of these politics. So today, of course, an organ a group like Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, what more? Uh, savvy and, and significant um, group could we think of uh, in terms of thinking about all of the implications of the, of the political uh, moment that we're in, racial, uh, imperial, global. So I, I feel like this is the way to think about neoliberalism as part of a, 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 the latest articulation of gender racial capitalism, which again, I learned so much from in contemporary moment when I, when I learned from Black Lives Matter.
0: Yeah, one of the things I really admire uh, about the book, John, is the way that it, you know, it was an important contribution to a discussion of historical politics, but that it also very much feels like it's looking towards our present and then towards possible futures, you know, to think about survival of certain types of, I don't know, radical and progressive politics in, in times of, uh, in stressful and um, imposs- seemingly impossible times, but also that, yeah, that it is engaged with the present, but then is also looking to, to possible futures, and and I think that's one of the effective things about the way the book closes. Do you have other thoughts about the legacies of the anti colonial front that you're looking at here?
1: Well, I really like the I really like, in addition to your very good questions, I really like the way you just put it. So that's uh, a nice note to to think about about ending on. The only thing I would maybe add to it is um, as important as it. Was, was to begin with Jacques Odell uh, because uh, of the way in which personally I came to this story through through meeting him, mm-hmm. uh, but also the way in which he embodied it so much. It seemed only most logical uh, to to conclude with his recent contemporary thinking uh, about about the state of, uh, again, gender racial capitalism and, and struggles against it. So I would take what you just said, uh, and what you put so well, and just add, as, as Jack O'Dell also teaches us in a contemporary moment.
0: That's great. I have to ask you, you know, I know that you have that you know, Jack O'Dell. And I, I guess I just wonder about the process of writing this book, and the conversations that you may have had with him. And, you know, if he's read the book, and
1: yeah, um, it was very, very gratifying to uh, send a copy uh, and speaking with him and his partner at power after they received the copy uh, was, was really wonderful. Um, and I will continue to talk about uh, the book, hopefully, with them as they, as they read it. So, yeah, it, it, it meant a lot to be able to say, you know, you taught me so much. And, and here's uh, an example of, of some of that learning.
0: That's pretty incredible. Well, John, I have one last question for you, which is what are you working on now?
1: Uh, yeah, um, I'm kind of continuing with this idea of colonialism and the Cold War, and I, I have a a new project project definitely in quotation marks here because it's very new, and I'm just starting to to try to think about what it is. Um, but to think more, in, in in some ways, in a in a traditional diplomatic history mode, and to think about looking at U.S. foreign policy in in this same era, um, in the 1940s and 1950s into the 1960s. As, as imperial uh, foreign policy, but also trying to resist using the Cold War. This is the difficult part for me. Trying to resist using the Cold War as the way to explain uh, what U.S. foreign policy is uh, in the um, in the post World War post World War II period. So I'm looking at presidential discourse, uh, government um, promotion for bomb shelters, and other kinds of Classically Cold War things, but trying to think about them through the the category of uh, of racial capitalism. So it definitely continues from from the work that I've done here and what I learned in the process of writing this book. And yeah, again, it's 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 pretty it's a bit sketchy at the moment, but I'm i we'll see where it goes.
0: Well, you did just finish a book, so you're allowed. <laughs> Um, to breathe for a moment. Uh, Well, John, I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining me and for writing this book.
1: Well, thank you, Roxanne. This has been such a pleasure.